It is a center for higher learning. It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Miskatonic University podcast, episode ninety-two. This is the podcast dedicated. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing games. I'm Keeper Dan. I'm Keeper John, and in this episode, we talk about a question regarding co-keepers. And I'm Keeper Chad, and we'll also be talking about character advancement. Guys, should we reinvent the wheel? Hmm. First, we're going to head things off in the Campus Crier. Miskatonic University Campus Crier. The Campus Crier's Miskatonic U student paper. Here's going to go through Mythos-related news and feedback for the podcast. This episode is recorded on November 16th, 2015. Hello everyone, Keeper Dan here. Oh my, where did all the time go? This was originally recorded over a month ago, and now all of a sudden it's the middle of December. Basically what happened is I found my computer floating upside down at the top of its tank one day, and I needed to build a whole new one. So now that's up and running, and uh, nice and stable and smooth, and so now I can get back to actually working on this podcast. So that is essentially what was the big delay. Plus, we have the holidays. So here in the U.S., we had Thanksgiving come along, and now we're almost to Christmas. We've got Force Awakens coming out. Yes, I count that as a holiday. Uh, We've got just all sorts of stuff. So family commitments, work schedules, all that are going to be kind of a weird thing over the next few weeks. We're basically planning to kind of take a break until after the new year, so that way we can kind of start things off fresh and uh, move forward from there. So don't worry, we are not pod fading, we're not dropping the show. I simply had some major technical issues that were preventing me from loading up these multi-gig WAV files and edit them. So... That's what's going on there. Now, for an updated campus crier, I do have a few things I wanted to bring out, and then I will splice in the original campus crier that we recorded last month. What I wanted to start with is that Cassium has released a whole bunch of files from the 7th edition Kickstarter as PDFs. So for those of us who are backers, we've been getting messages with codes that allow us to download these from the Chaosium store for free, uh, starting off with the four various card decks, Curious Characters, Phobias, Unfortunate Events, and Weapons and Artifacts. All four of those decks were available as downloads. And then also the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition Arkham Sanitarium kit, which had a ton of images and forms and documents and stuff. Very cool collection in there. I really like that a lot. Then, as far as other news to bring in, 
it was recently announced that Gen Con for this year, 2016, is going to be expanding its real estate. They have made a deal that they're now going to be moving into the Lucas Oil Stadium for some of their large venue type of events, such as the uh, True Dungeon is now going to be taking place over at Lucas Oil Stadium. That opens up a big piece of meeting real estate in the convention center for uh, other types of uh, get-togethers. So that's terrific that they've expanded out into this other range, and uh, I think that's definitely going to be good for the convention. It's going to make the, the, the convention hall feel a little less crowded in certain areas. And the, you know, the traffic going back and forth across the street, certainly going to be heavier, but, you know, that's not that big of a deal. So keep that in mind for this coming year. If you're going to Gen Con, that some of the things that you're interested in very well might be taking place across the street at Lucas Oil Stadium. Now, in the interest of getting this episode out, I am going to be doing a minimalist approach to the edit. So, uh, please forgive the difference in quality. I want to just get this done and out there so that way, uh, you know, all of you fine folks have an episode to listen to. So, this is going to be very fast and loose with the editing. It's going to have a lot more of the ums and ahs and pops and stuff like that that I would normally take the time to edit out. I'm going to basically skip big chunks of time and then just let it go. So this is going to be more the raw version of our conversation that we had as it was recorded. And also during this episode recording, Chad's connection was very poor at some times. We were hoping to do a thing where he recorded on his end, but the file transfer didn't work so well, so I didn't get it. And so basically what we have is my copy of it as it came through the internet tubes and then recorded on my computer. So his audio gets bad sometimes. It's not much I can do to scrub that to uh, sound better. So it's not your player it's definitely, it's the Skype recording that came through. That's just how it sounded. And now we pick up with our month late recording of the Miskatonic University podcast, episode 92. So, printing on Call of Cthulhu 7th edition has commenced, according Woo! to KO- Yeah. According to Chaosium's Kickstarter page, uh, the printing on the internal pages has started, and then this week, the week we're recording, so for you all, last week, the covers should be in process now. And so after that, when printing finishes, it will be at least six weeks for shipping. Uh, Shipping from Hong Kong to fulfillment centers in the U.S., Europe, and Australia begins immediately after that. And then uh, they're actually trying to figure out how to set up links so that you can follow shipping containers across the ocean, as other Kickstarter starters have done. But uh, anyway, that's the update at this point. I know we are always uh, taking grains of salt with updates, but at this point, they seem to be on track. They seem to be delivering what they say they're delivering, and uh, we should see it, yeah, possibly early next year, I guess, if it's six weeks, you'll actually have in hand uh, January. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's looking like realistically. 
And I have no idea actually how you would do a tracking the shipping containers. I, If other Kickstarters have done it, I've not seen that. Then there's obviously a way to do it, and that would be awesome if they can. Well, I mean, you know how um, uh, with Amazon you can like track your package. You know, I mean, they 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 the the packages get uh, scanned in, barcode scanned in. You know, at certain locations, I think they have technology like that, plus some maybe even GPS technology on those uh, shipping containers. So you'll be able to mm-hmm. tell not only was it scanned as leaving in this dock and whatnot, but you might even be able to see it, you know, crossing the ocean and coming towards certain uh, ports and whatnot. So, yeah, I hope they can figure that out because that would be so cool to see. It would be. And then they, you know, as they're sailing over, you know, the uh, uh, railier, you know. Yeah, exactly. If they're crossing (laughs) the Pacific from China to uh, the West Coast, that means that at some point they're going to be, you know, this is the closest point to Rilia that the books are currently at. Well, I think at that point, somebody on the ship has to throw one copy of the game overboard as a a sacrifice, you know, as an offering. (laughs) So the deep as long as it's not mine. mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to bring up a mention here about uh, on the latest episode of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias that I uh, listened to. It's a really good one. And they had a little bit in there that I really had a good time listening to. They're talking about the first campaign that will be made available for Pulp Cthulhu which in itself isn't quite available yet. But there's going to be a campaign ready to go, you know, shortly after the book itself is out called The Two-Headed Serpent. And it sounds like a blast. Huh. So like and they they were talking about the play tests where each of the three guys had actually run their own play tests and they had three very different play styles with the players and where one of them, it would almost felt like a normal Call of Cthulhu game. Everyone's cautious and all that. Another one, they're getting a little bit more into the pulp stuff, and it's, you know, fairly action-adventure-y. And in the third one, they confiscated some sort of flying craft and put a death ray on it. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So uh, that's, you know, I, I just love that. Uh, yeah, so, I foresee myself really getting into Pulp Cthulhu. I think that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be such a nice alternative play style. I want to see Cthulhu in the Hollow Earth. Oh, yeah. That would very much work. And a um, post that they just put up was that they at Dragon Meat... On the 5th of December, they're going to be doing a live show in conjunction with the What Would the Smart Party Do podcast. And they're going to basically be having a debate that will be recorded for both shows, I assume, about is there too much Cthulhu in gaming? And that seminar is going to take place at uh, 6 o'clock. And uh, yeah, he... They put down, bring a poncho, the first three rows could get wet. (laughs) Links for everything will be in the show notes. So if you're in the UK, I would definitely advise, yeah, go to Dragon Meat and uh, 
witness this in person. This could be hilarious. Well, you know, the seventh seal of hell has been broken because this year they announced Cthulhu Monopoly and Cthulhu uh, Yahtzee. So there could be too much Cthulhu. I'm looking at that Yahtzee Cthulhu. game just for that awesome idle cup. Actually, yeah, I think I want to get the Yahtzee one, too. <laughs> I did I'm get the Firefly it. Yahtzee. Oh, did you? Just just for the Serenity Dice Cup. And there's two uh, Doctor Who ones. There's uh-huh. uh, there's a... Uh, TARDIS a and a Dalek. Dalek. Yeah, Dalek and a TARDIS. So those look cool. Yeah. But yeah, I'll probably get it just for the Dice Cup. Uh, Arkham Gazette number three is on its way out to backers now. It's available for purchase as well from Drive Through RPG. Uh, we talked about it way back in episode 83. Oh, my gosh, 83. And Brett was, uh, Brett is calling now for submissions for issue number four. Uh, the likely topic is going to be Kingsport, Chad. Chad, Kingsport. Um, but the other <laughs> the other possible uh, topics uh, could be Dunwich uh, or the Hyborians uh, and also uh, Law and Crime in uh, Lovecraft Country. So... Very cool. I love Arkham Gazette. I just, you know, I love that he uh, has gone out of his way to uh, format it to look like the old style Chaosium uh, publications. It just, it's amazing. It's basically a witchcraft in Lovecraft Country that, that has done has so much stuff. Which haunted came in Lovecraft Country. There's uh, so, so much information in there. Yeah. Yeah. And top quality information. I mean, just Brett Kramer and, and the, the people have con- that have contributed to that, uh, well, each and every issue, uh, they're just, man, top notch info and just so well produced. So, quality, quality product. And now, Sentinel Hill Press News, Brett is starting his own podcast. He already has one episode recorded in. And in the works, the first episode should drop probably by the time this airs. It's called the Sentinel Hill Presscast, and it's going to cover Sentinel Hill Press news and interviews, plus New England folklore and history. It's going to have some segments. He's still working out some of the bumpers and whatnot, but this is meant to be going out monthly, and it sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Like an almost audio version of the Gazette, but just different yeah. topics and oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah I'm exactly. I'm looking, looking very forward to this. This is going to be fantastic. Yeah, that's going to be really really See, cool. I wanted to add that we sort of missed it, but you, it's still online. If you want to check out his October Ganza, which is at Sentinel Hill Press, he every day of October posted something about Lovecraft Country or about Sentinel Hill Press stuff in the works, and you should really check it out. There's some amazing historical footnotes and little pieces of information that you could use in your Lovecraft Country campaigns. Yeah, I don't know why we we whiffed that as it was going, but uh, it was really, really well put together, and he, he had to have put a lot of work and planning in advance of what he was doing, because it was every freaking day. Man. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that takes a lot of dedication, too. Yeah. You've got separate on diners and society for psychical research and, you know, whole campaign frames that you could use in just a few paragraphs. So do check nice. it out. 
Man, that is nice. I stand behind anything that uses the word psychical. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Because psychic just isn't mysterious enough. (laughs) Yeah. Can't be psychic research. No, it's psychical. That extra syllable needs all the emphasis. (laughs) The right emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yes. John, you, you went to a con, sort of. Sort of. I went to a con in my basement. Uh, so the this last weekend, uh, November 12th, 13, 14, I think, or four, 13, 14, 15, um, this last weekend was uh, EtherCon 4. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. I chose to run a uh, session uh, at the 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. time schedule. Uh, that was for Central Standard Time, and uh, and it was it was crazy to get up that early. We ended out playing actually instead of for four hours, we played for six hours. We pushed it on, and and so we ended up playing uh, my version of the Haunting. Uh, well, my version along with uh, Corey uh, Corey Welch has just contributed so much to this. Um, it's impossible to tell where his start, his work starts and my work ends. I mean, it just completely blends in enhancing the, uh, original version of the haunting. And, uh, and he actually, Corey ran it not too long ago at, at, uh, game hole con. And I ran it now at, uh, EtherCon, and just so much fun. And the players just loved it. Um, had some, uh, familiar names in, in my game, uh, Hugh played, uh, Shannon Mack played in the game. Uh, we had a player from the Netherlands in the game, uh, and it was great. And one player, he, uh, I, I believe he was a listener or is a listener to the podcast, but he had been out of role playing for a very long time, and he just decided, you know, because I mean he's a busy guy, young kids. And, uh, and it's just hard, you know, hard to work mm-hmm. that into your life, you know, doing some role playing. He found out about EtherCon, um, I think through the podcast, actually, if I, re- if I recall correctly. And, uh, uh, his name is Steve and, uh, Steve decided that he was going to play in the haunting on, e- you know, via EtherCon. He went out and purchased, you know, new dice, to play with and everything. And so he just was going to get into it and had a blast. And so all of us who were in the game have all uh, uh, friended each other via uh, Google plus. And so we're all, you know, following each other's work and talking and and just having a good time. But it was, it was so much fun. I did record the game uh, since it was uh, a hangouts on air. I've recorded it. So soon I hope to get that submitted, excuse me, so that we can have uh, that game, that that session on our uh, live play feed. So I'll work with Dan to make that happen soon. Yeah. Yep. Once we get that, that'll be a nice one to just drop into the feed and get this kind of get a a rolling release again going for the uh, the live play uh, yeah. feed. And, but and it was a it was a shame because we you know the game. We pushed two hours beyond our uh, our scheduled time slot, and we still didn't finish it. So I ended up having to just go into narration mode and just kind of tell the players, you know, based because I based it upon the way the game was kind of unfolding for them. Um, 
and they they did kind of push it so they they were in the final confrontation they just we didn't get to finish it so based upon how it was already going i kind of narrated how that was gonna gonna go but they had a blast they had a really good time that's fantastic. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that the idea of this online con it seems to be working so well. You know, yeah, I remember EtherCon was like a brand new thing when we first started. I think it was maybe year two, something like that, when we were just getting started up, and uh, it's still going strong. And and Chaosium and those guys actually had some seminars at EtherCon as well. They did. Yep. So oh, wow. that is really cool to have actual game publishers doing stuff at a virtual con like this. Yeah, it was it was pretty pretty awesome. It was fun. Yeah. And I just wanted to do another quick update. I I don't mean to just keep plugging it, but they made a change at Patreon, which I was actually very happy to see. What they did was that the amount that's now reflected on the campaign page that uh you see well, the number isn't quite as uh, even as it used to be. It used to be in you know nice flat numbers because it was just adding up all the pledges, and that was it. Well, now it displays all the pledges minus the fees. So they're taking out the PayPal and Patreon's fees and demonstrating that. So they actually show what we really are getting. And I really like that. Well, that is good. You know, so that way there's real clarity on what mm-hmm. we are receiving and what we're able to use, you know, for, uh, the different show needs, you know, yeah. server costs and all that kind of stuff. Equipment exactly. purchases. I appreciate transparency for sure. Uh-huh. And so, you know, right now it's forty six ninety three per month is what we actually receive. And that's just really cool. I think that was a great idea. I actually emailed them to say thank you that I really like that idea and I hope they keep it. I think it's like a, you know, it's kind of a, a, a pilot project to see how people like it. Personally, I love it. So uh, I hope they keep that going. Agreed. Okay, well, the massive Nyarlathotep props Kickstarter that I think that we covered before. Yeah, I know we've mentioned it. Yeah. Well, this has been late in fulfillment, and this is one of those Kickstarters, unfortunately, that has gone a bit sour and thought that we might cover it since we actually announced announced the launch or we talked about it ahead of time. If you look on YSDC, we'll have a link in the show notes to a thread where it turns out that there hasn't been an update since August 13th, and despite declarations that shipping had commenced uh, earlier in the summer and backers at this point are organizing for possible legal action. So, wow. Yeah. That's always not fun to report when Kickstarters go, go like that. Hopefully it'll turn out. Okay. We'll be watching to see what happens next. Yeah. That's a, a difficult thing for anything that actually has a physical product component to it that you know because that winds up being so much more effort to produce and it has to be put in the mail and all that stuff and yeah it's just sad that it's gotten to that point and the props all look just fantastic yeah it's an attractive kickstarter for sure mm-hmm. i yeah. wonder what the what the issue was on why they couldn't complete i mean it seems like 
it just sounds like a huge hill to climb. Making props for that mega campaign mm-hmm. seems like it would be super heavy, you know, and and thus costly for shipping. I just yeah. And then and then the work to to go in and mass produce that kind of stuff just seems daunting. And yeah, I'm 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 wondering what the actual specific issue was though that has put them so far behind. I'm well, pretty sure it probably was an overpromise kind of situation. I mean, I got the impression it was one guy doing this stuff, and so if he doesn't have a production facility, somebody's trying to make all these things out of their home and you get hundreds of orders, you're pretty much screwed. Yeah, and I think the the major issue here is communication again. What we what we saw here is somebody dropping out of sight. There's been no update since August 13th. That was a while ago, and even before that, people were clamoring saying what's what's happening and it took a very long time for that update to to even happen. So, if you do have issues and you get overwhelmed, I think it's fair to say that people will be upset, uh, reasonably so, because you, you know, got their money. But um, communication goes a really long way, and I think that's a lesson, unfortunately, that seems to need learning again and again. Um, I guess I was going to launch into a bit of an update. I went to CarnageCon in Vermont last cool. weekend. Is that possible? That seems like it's been a very, very long week, folks, <laughs> here, here in the New York office. Um, anyway, but I went up with uh, under the umbrella of Golden Goblin Press uh, with Oscar and uh, with Sean, last name withheld. I'm just not sure. I didn't ask him if it'd be okay to, to mm-hmm. identify him, but he's... Uh, friend of Golden Goblin, close friend of Golden Goblin, and um, the three of us ran a bunch of games, at least a total of six, if not more. Certainly more, actually. There was an unofficial uh, invite-only game that happened late at night on Saturday, Fire the Fireside game, which is now... Uh, there's actually an actual play that might come out sometime. <laughs> um, cool. That, well, no, you have it. <laughs> you have the file. Uh, oh. we'll, we'll talk after. Um, okay. but so I don't uh, remember. last, no, that's all right. Uh, last year's, uh, it's fireside. Anyway, so I got to run, I got to run two scenarios riding the northbound, which is the hobo Thanksgiving scenario. That, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so hobos are gathering for Thanksgiving. They show up to where they think it's going to be a big uh, party and it turns out only the elderly hobos are there and they have to figure out uh, where everybody went and it turns out they are off to a hobo wedding which is a lot of fun and so it's it's part role uh, hobo the role playing game and then it, it kind of turns Cthulhu and that was a lot of fun I had a lot of fun with my players and I got to play test Whisper of Crones which is my Invictus scenario that I wrote a couple of years ago that finally saw the light of day uh, as a playtest, and that was fascinating. Playtesting awesome. scenario, uh, John, you will know uh, much more about this than I, is, is really interesting, right? To, to take it to a con, to take it to strangers, to completely just let it hang out and try to make sure that it runs in four hours is quite yeah. ask. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, and it can be it can be quite eye opening. You can find things and go, 
well, I need to completely change that. Um, yes, that is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> they found a glitch. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Uh, anyway, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I think players enjoyed that one as well. That one I was a little more, you know, a little bit more nervous about. The hobo one was just kind of a rip-roaring uh, Cthulhu party. The uh, Invictus one is a thinkier scenario and ha- had a lot of uh, clues and whatnot. And well, um, I think it went well. I, I love the title of your of your Invictus scenario, Whisper of Crones. That just is yeah. it's a very it's a very thought provoking and, and and provides a lot of imagery. Um you know, knowing the setting and everything, it makes me think of the uh the Oracles of Delphi or something, you know, so it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Not far off. Yep. It takes place in Syria, uh right after the uh crushing of the Jewish revolt in, in Judea. And um, so it's got a lot of politics, but it's also the core of it is just kind of a, a straight up um, spooky story, I guess. Anyway, that happened. Nice. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> I'm glad you made it to that. I know Oscar posted up that, you know, he did that and stuff, but I wasn't sure if you were able to go or not. So I'm glad to hear that you did that and had a great time. Yeah, me too. I was, I was, that was a welcome break in yeah. kind of a otherwise crappy week. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to uh, give out a, a huge thank you to Gerald on the forums. He actually had a spare piece of gear that he just didn't plan on using. And so he donated it to us. Uh, so I've got a nice little Zoom H1 audio recorder. And Man, that is so awesome. Yeah, this is just an awesome little piece of kit, and uh, it's super portable. And I've already got an H4, but that's a lot chunkier. This is a really teeny little thing, and I plan on carrying this around a lot whenever I go to places to try and get, you know, sound clips and stuff of uh, for uh, possible bumpers and things. So, uh, cool. thank you very, very much, Gerald. This is greatly appreciated and, uh, will be put to good use. I love it. Fantastic. I know. Thank you so much. That is just awesome. <laughs> and for our Cryptocurium spotlight, I just wanted to bring attention to that the January Cryptocurium parcel of terror has been announced and this has got some very cool stuff in there. It, kind of has a loose bug theme with a few of the items in it. Uh, Starting off, we've got the next in the Universal Monster series of stickers. So we have an Invisible Man, as portrayed in the Universal film. There is a print from the Fluke Man from an X-Files episode. This is a really cool-looking print. It's a really great image. Then we get the three items that fit the bug motif. Starting off with the wall plaque. This one isn't Lovecraftian. This is the queen alien head from Aliens. Then we have the slasher magnet, which in this case is now Candyman. And then the pin that's coming with the set is a cute little telepod from the 1980s remake of The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. And so all three of those have kind of a bug thing going on. 
If you've not seen Candyman, there is also a big thing to do with bees in that movie. So we've got the alien, the fly, and Candyman with the bees. This is very cool. I'm looking forward to getting mine. Thank you for Crypticurium for your support. Settle down now, class. It's time for your next lesson. For our first topic of the episode here, we've got some feedback that it actually had enough thought-provoking stuff in there that we decided to make it into a topic for the uh, back half of this email. And it starts off with, uh, Hello, Keepers. Daniel may recall that we met briefly after the Future of Chaosium panel at Gen Con. In the course of talking, I mentioned my actual play podcast, The Esoteric Order of Roleplayers. And you said to drop you a line after the con with a reminder, which this is what it is. And yes, I do remember. So uh, I'm glad that you got around to sending that out. And totally, uh, trust me, I very much understand the delay in that. It, I don't care that it's three months later. It, it's fine. <laughs> And uh says, we just wrapped up playing through the Great Pendragon campaign. 20 months of play and 78 sessions. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 20 months. That is really oh. impressive. But we're primarily fans of horror gaming. We're playing through the big hoodoo for Trail of Cthulhu right now. And we'll be tackling Horror on the Orient Express in 7th edition in 2016. So, yes, that nice. is That's very, very cool. And there is a link to their site in the show notes. So if you don't have your fill of actual play podcasts, here's another one to add to your list. And then he continues, on the topic of Orient Express, I have a question for you. Here's where the topic part comes in. What are your thoughts on adversaries slash co-keepers? This is the concept of having a second person in the GM role who plays one or more of the main villains of the campaign, as well as perhaps a selection of minor NPCs. We tried the adversary approach with the Great Pendragon campaign, but it didn't end up working out in the context and structure of the overall campaign although we did manage to get some interesting villain moments out of it before ultimately ditching it and having the adversary player join the group as a regular PC. However, I'm thinking with Orient Express, the approach might work better. What with the strangers on the train booklet and the various baddies to be found throughout the course of the campaign. Just wondering if this was something any of you guys had encountered before, or if you'd consider employing it in any of your games. Thanks and go pods! David. Thank you so yeah. much for writing in, David, and that is a really good topic idea. It for really sure. is. It's it's uh it's not something that I've ever tried, so I don't know. Yeah, so as far as experience, I would say I've been in a uh, what's it called? Grace Under Pressure, run by two GMs. But I would not say that either of them, you know, particularly played, uh, took on the role of a villain or 
you know, it's just because that scenario tends toward splitting the party so much. And we had a very big party and it worked really well. So I, you know, just having two keepers, if you're really going to kind of go throw down and, and do a big weekend or something like that, I think it's awesome. And it certainly helps, uh, you know, keep track of all, you know, all the moving parts and whatnot. But yeah, I like the idea of having somebody play a villain. I think it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've actually employed it, but it is something that I've thought about. I just haven't really been in a position to actually try it. But yeah, I think actually Orient Express is a very good place to do that and experiment with the idea because it does give you a whole book full of NPCs for other people that are on the journey. And there are some very interesting, very uh, larger-than-life antagonist roles in the game that I think would be played very well by another person that knows their motivations. Yeah, that would be my concern, is that... um uh, that the uh, co-keeper is completely informed and doesn't um, accidentally, I, I can't imagine that they would do it maliciously, but you know, accidentally take that NPC into directions not meant to go in. Um, and I, I, I feel like, and maybe I'm just being paranoid, I mean, I know that this co-keeper would ideally... Uh, fill roles of uh, NPCs that are that are uh, beneficial and, and benevolent uh, for the for the party to encounter uh, for the investigators to to speak with, but I don't know. I feel like you're setting up a situation where the other players around the table are, are going to be like everything this guy says regardless of what character he's playing i'm taking with a grain of salt and i and i know that they you know players will do that anyways with the with the game master but i don't know there's there's something about you know because the game master has to fill that role must be in that position is running the game that maybe your guard is down a little more i i, I only say that cuz today i was uh, i was playing a uh, not Call of Cthulhu, but I was I was playing uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics over lunch at work today, and I pulled one player aside to give him separate information uh, about something that he may have heard or something. And for the for that entire hour of play, the other players around the table, even though when the other actual party member, when this guy, just because I had a private conversation with him, every time he would say something, the other players around the table. We're, we're, we're calling BS and we're not wanting to trust him because he had a private conversation with the, with the game master, you know, before we, before we really got rolling, you know, and, uh, and I feel like something like that may occur or it has a, is certainly more likely to occur, uh, in a, in a place where you've got one actual person at the table who doesn't have any characters of his own. He, he plays these NPC characters. I don't know. I feel like the, uh, uh, you're setting yourself up for the players to be adversarial against that player. 
I, I would say that a way to solve that is to have the villain player just play clear bad guys and for the the keeper to play anyone who is either on the fence where you don't know their intentions until until they become the villain players you know clear bailiwick um i think that you do make that if you have two people why not make that division and have one guy just be playing the villains and and then definitely checking in with the keeper about intentions about uh, you know the movement of the troops and whatnot, so that the keeper can also mitigate you know overpowered moves or um, you know the villain the villain player may be doing things uh, you know with too much knowledge uh, maybe you need to nerf that person but you know as long as the keeper has a has final say and has good adjudication I think it could be really interesting because you could feel like you're really up against another intelligence rather than a keeper who's kind of trying to have, you know, make everybody have fun. And, you know, there is that thing keeper where you're trying to kind of skirt that line between uh, trying to be tough, but also trying to keep the pacing right and the game flowing so that nobody's disappointed with the outcome. But if you, if everybody knows that there's a, there's an actual thinking enemy behind behind the screen i don't know i think it could be fun it, it it's certainly an interesting experiment would would that keeper be able to do any role playing beyond mustache twirling maniacal laughter and monologuing <laughs> well uh, that's interesting i mean i i would hope that they'd actually have some amount of agency strategically to you know where the keeper would hand them information and say this is what you know you know you one of your minions was down at the post office and overheard this um and then have that person act on it as far as like dialogue and and role playing um i would hope so i would hope there you know you could certainly have complicated characters as you can in any game um the interesting thing is those gray characters though right because yeah. we've, we've talked about the, the benevolent ones and we've talked about the twirling mustaches. But for me, when I write uh, in my limited experience writing scenarios or when I seek out scenarios, what I want is a sympathetic villains or, you know, villains who, who you can't really call a villain. It's they're, they're almost victims of the mythos or they're, you know, just doing their best, trying to get by, uh, and, and they end up taking a shortcut that, uh, you know, opens a doorway to, um, to the cosmos. But you know. or they're so desperate to to get their wife or children returned to them that they'll do all these terrible horrors in the name of of love, and then in the end realize that the you know the 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 way the villain's going to reunite them is that he kills him too. So they're reunited in the aftermath, or something. You know, but and you know what would be fun? It just kind of struck me is if uh, if you planned ahead and you you planted a second keeper secretly amongst the player characters, so that he's running a character, a member of the party who's actually a double agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've seen that before. I've seen a, a player planted as a werewolf in a party. Uh, this was actually a fantasy game, but 
that that turned out to be really a lot of fun for sure yeah there was the game that i had mentioned uh before that one of the players as part of a uh in insanity he wound up being a serial killer on a cruise ship for a little while and uh so yeah it, it brought a very interesting new dynamic to things when they figured it out and went oh crap and so <laughs> you know then they basically had to decide do we stay loyal to our friend do we turn him in do we throw him off the side of the ship and discover he's missing tomorrow i mean what do we do so uh yeah yeah it wound up being just a bunch of unsolved murders. <laughs> I, I'm sensing that the unsolved was in air quotes. <laughs> yes. Unsolved as far as anyone else on the ship and authorities was concerned. What they decided to take care of things in their own house and brought him home and had some very justice. extensive therapy. <laughs> You know, this does make me think that discussion of what would you do about the gray areas and how, you know, how, how do you handle PCs that are NPCs that are you're not sure if they're in on it, um, which is part of Call of Cthulhu is, is that distrust. But if you took it to Pulp Cthulhu and you played, if you, you had somebody twirling their mustache and playing being the Merciless, I think it could be a whole lot of fun to have a, a really big villain yeah. Just do their best to thwart these pretty capable heroes and see what happens. Uh-huh. Someone who would throw an appropriate tantrum whenever he was uh, beaten. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be pretty fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, that came... And I, that, that's what, sorry, that's what I think immediately is, God, I want to be that person. I <laughs> For number two, playing the villains. That sounds like the most fun role at the table to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I bet it would be. Yeah, one thing that um, I also thought of after reading this is that there was a published scenario that involves multiple keepers. Now, not in this same manner, it, where the multiple keepers each were doing standard keeper duties uh, within, you know, scenario, but uh, Gatsby and the Great Race, written by Paul Fricker, is actually designed to be a game for up to 32 people. And this uses uh, seven keepers and 24 players. And then... Holy cow! Yeah, at various... Well, it can scale up up to that size. It doesn't have to be. But, and then at certain intervals, the keepers actually kind of talk among themselves, so that way everybody's on the same page as to what the groups are doing, and then the groups go to different keepers. I've not actually participated in this. I've heard about how it goes, and it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I would uh, love it. Part of that since I heard about it. It sounds awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that that kind of came to my mind is that it was actually designed to have that many uh players and keepers, which is just 
know, just amazing work in trying to figure out the logistics of it. I think that's one of those hallmark moments that really brought Paul's name to the forefront in Call of Cthulhu design, because that's a, a very much a unique scenario concept. Ambitious to write and ambitious to run. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I would love to see that actually, you know, performed in some way at a con and uh, see just how that plays out. Because I've almost uh, kind of avoided reading it because I would like to actually play in it someday. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I have I have that monograph, but I, I haven't read it yet. So that's interesting. You know, something that uh, uh, also sort of along this line that just kind of came to mind is uh, years ago I went to a convention and they were running an event called uh, Dungeons of Chaos, or I think is the name of it, something like that. And um, it was really awesome. Uh, they, for the one that I had gone to, um, it was a uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, event and they had a series of tables all in a row each table had its own uh, game master mm-hmm. and each table was running its own uh, version of D&D the game was you know used pre-generated characters but all of the tables I think there were five tables and I think each table had room for five players. The the five pre-generated characters were the same characters, but recreated under each of those different rule sets. And so you you know, all five tables are populated with players, and you know, they they blow the whistle and then you start playing. Okay, and so you play like for an hour at the table, and you get as far as you can, and then the whistle blows, and all players get up and rotate to a new table. You sit down with your same character, and you pick up where that last table left off, and keep pushing through the adventure. And so you you were. And uh, and all five tables were running the exact same adventure, uh, and so as you were breaching through, it, it was a it was only a five room dungeon. As you were breaching through each room, um, you were in a different universe or something like that is how it was working, and and so you were pushing all the way through to try and defeat the dragon at the end of the thing. But I'm wondering if something like that would be entertaining to do. At a con setting um, in Call of Cthulhu, where maybe Cthulhu over the years we've we've developed, you know, Chaosium has supported, and other comp- and other you know uh, uh, companies with the licensing have supported and created all these wonderful time period settings. And I'm wondering it, it might be interesting to do like a some kind of time travel scenario where you've got multiple tables, and so. You know, one table's running Dark Ages and another one's running, you know, uh, the Gaslight and one's doing Invictus and one's doing the 20s and one's doing, you know, Far Future. And and it's still, it's the same scenario with the same NPCs, you know, generated for each one. And 
you just kind of rotate through with the different uh, keepers running, you know, all these players through the same scenario. I think that would be, I think that could be fun. Yeah. Yeah, that could be pretty sure. cool. I have heard of that sort of idea before. Didn't Sterling actually do something along those lines? Yes, yeah, Sterling. So Sterling Hershey, um, I think, was helping to coordinate something like that at the game here at the convention here locally in Kansas City. Yeah. Um, and over the years, they've done it in different ways. Uh, so one year they did it with completely ga- different game systems. So it was, uh, you know, the five tables would be running. One table's D and D. The other's Paranoia. The other one's Call of Cthulhu. Another one is you know Marvel superheroes, and another one's something else, right? Uh, yeah. You know, but whatever. They're Hollow all Earth. Playing the same characters. They're all playing the same characters in that, in that setting and game. And they're all playing basically the same type of scenario, and but it gets reinterpreted each time. Every yeah. time the players go through some sort of you know cosmic event and they get you know bling and now i'm this kind of character and then bling i'm another character uh but i think you know that could be a fun and interesting way to uh, have a um a con event and and get exposed to uh some of the different um settings of call of cthulhu since Mm -hmm. so many of these are are all still using the core brp rules you wouldn't really have uh, a learning curve in between games. It was interesting, the one that I played in with the whole, all the different various versions of, of Dungeons & Dragons, one table's running chainmail rules, you know? I mean, every weapon did a D6 in damage. It didn't matter what it was, you know? And it was just, it was interesting to to, to experience all these different things. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, I, I like the idea. I, I particularly like the in media res situation that you'd have there where you just yeah. plop down in the middle of an adventure that's in progress. That just sounds like a blast to me mm-hmm. and sort of dizzy, dizzying and un- unnerving in a fun way. Yeah. Right. And what was so interesting is it was both an in media res experience, but then it wasn't also because you were still pushing, you know, since it was a five room dungeon, you still pushed from this room into the next, you know, so uh, I, we just breached into the next room. And now instead of fighting the gargoyles in that other room, now we're fighting the stone giants or something in this room, you know? So, but Mm. it, it was very, uh, it was very interesting. You know, it was jarring each time you changed tables, but you still felt, at least I did. I felt like I was still playing one cohesive story towards the end. It just had, you know, different, uh, set dressings with each Mm -hmm. one. It's neat. There's an awesome power there, too, where you have shared experiences from so many people. Afterwards, I'm sure that the post-table chatter must have been awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did you do in that situation? Oh, I played that character. and Yeah. I, I can imagine just awesome uh, crosstalk. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I know that there was actually a another similar concept which is also going outside of the Call of Cthulhu thing, but it that's reminds me of this, is that um, it, you have one room, you've got like two or three tables, and they're all playing one event in a game, and what this was based around was Star Wars. 
And so you know how in a Star Wars movie you'll have one party of people doing this thing, another party of people doing this other thing? Well, that's what they did, is that there was somebody as timekeeper that would, you know, keep track of certain events and things and to help the time scale work with the different tables. But you would have one table would be doing all of the space combat aspect of this battle. Another area would be doing the ground infiltration part. And another part table would be doing some other aspect of it. And they the way one would do its part would affect how another one would be able to carry out its missions. Oh. And so the tables actually supported each other because, well, we need you to do this before we can move in on our part. And it's... They work together like that. And uh, that, I thought, was a really cool idea. Yeah. So you have different zoom-in and zoom-out mm-hmm. scales to... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it basically worked off the concept of uh, the end of Return of the Jedi, where you've got the space battle, you've got the Endor battle, you've got the Death Star confrontation, only with a larger group in the Death Star part, basically. But it wasn't specifically the Death Star. But that same kind of idea. And it was, you know, from what I hear, it worked pretty well. And it was probably a really cool game. Yeah, it does sound fun. Yeah. Anything else you guys can think of? I was just uh, about to riff on X-Wing, but I think it's time to put that, yeah. that topic to not even talking about the topic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> For Ken and Robin, we would have left the hut long ago. <laughs> yeah. But it was still multiple keeper, multiple GM type stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. X-Wing, yeah. I think, is going a little farther off the track than we need. Yeah. I was biting my tongue. (laughs) (laughs) And then for our second topic, we were pointed to a uh, WordPress blog post that somebody did that uh, this was, I believe, Corey that pointed this out to us, our, uh, our good buddy of the show. And what this was is somebody who has been playing Call of Cthulhu recently. Of course, it's an older post, but he generally seems to really enjoy it, but that he was having some frustrations in the way that the character progression was working. With the standard method of you roll your dice, you if you can make it over your current skill, then you get to add a d10. And... He had put examples of that there were many times when, you know, he would have something that he could only add like a one, two, you know, on several different times of increased. And then there were skills of 5% that just never, ever got any better. And so he came up with his own method of skill progression which, after reading through it, I actually don't think is a bad idea. I think it actually pr- could probably work with some playtesting to uh, work out any bugs. But that kind of just brought up the idea of, okay, let's talk about how skill progression does work, can work, could work in the the realm of, of Call of Cthulhu. 
Yeah. Do we want just for context to go over what the idea this the, uh, of this blog post is as far as how you know yeah. roughly yeah. how? Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah. cover that. Yeah. And now this is written uh, in October of uh, the, so this past October. Uh, so actually, it wasn't as long ago as I thought it was. No. No. Uh, it's only a few weeks. Couple weeks. Yeah. And uh, by somebody who goes by the name Prime Loki. The link will be in the show notes. And generally, the idea came from the skill progression in Burning Wheel, which I've personally not read. But the idea is basically every time a character fails a skill test, you would add a check to that skill. You can get up to five checks in a skill. And so each time, basically, you fail at something, you you do that. Whenever you ex- succeed at it, then you erase the check marks and add that number to their skill rating. So essentially, if you fail a skill twice in a given length of time then you've got two checks, but then you succeed at it. Well, you get to add two points to that skill because you learned from those two times you failed at it and then you succeeded. Oh, that's what I was doing wrong. And you can do it up to five fails in a row, which is, you know, pretty bad if you're failing a skill five times in a row before you succeed. But I could see it happening. Sure. And it it eliminates the randomness of how many points get added to the skill. Right. Which is, if so I'm looking at my 6th edition book now to see, I seem to remember that that's an option, right? That you can just take a 5? Or is that just a house rule that I remember from, instead of rolling, that you can take 5? I I think that's right. I mean, that's my, maybe I, I do that as a house rule if, um, if the if during the usage of that skill, um, the player uh, rolled a, an extreme success, so not just pass, but extremely pass. You know, in the past, I was doing it as as uh, you know one fifth of their skill roll, um, but uh, you know, but with seventh edition, it could be uh either the extreme or maybe the uh the impale which is just the zero one percent you know but um in the past my house rule was um if the usage of that skill was done at the one fifth of your value i i asked my players to put not just a check mark but put something special something that you can remember that that was done with uh extreme success and so when it would come time for skill progression i return to that and i say hey, okay you see that skill that you have the special mark on indicating extreme success i am now giving you the option you can either take the flat five and be done with it or you can attempt to roll percentile dice to fail the the current value of of that skill and if you fail, throw the D10 because you never know, you might get the 10. And, and so get more, you know, twice the number of points I'm willing to give you for free. Uh, and many times my players will just say, hey, I'll, I'll just take the flat five. 
you know. Uh, but then on the other skills where they had their just regular uh, successful use of it, there's no choice. I don't give them a choice. They still have to go through the regular process of, you know, throw a percentile, fail the skill, add the D10. Yeah, and that is a very workable way of doing it. You know, I like the idea that it actually means something whenever you do that impale, super extreme success kind of a a thing on there. That it it basically, you know, gives them a, a free pass to an increase, only at a lesser extent than what they possibly could get. Right. You know, what I like about what uh, this. Um, Prime Loki came up with is that it actually does take into account the learning from failure part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of neat. And that if you only do one failure and then you succeed, well, you get one point added. And that's uh, just kind of cool. And it doesn't rely on a downtime. Uh, of the scenario either at the uh, between chapters kind of break that we usually do it at. Mm-hmm. So you potentially have some moments of drama where you get just good enough uh, it, just in time, right? Yeah. For the, the time that you need it at the end of the scenario and then you make the roll, you know, it's, yeah. it creates some tension. There. Yeah. And, uh, you, you kind of have that epiphany in play of, oh my god, I get this now. Now I see why I screwed up, you know, with doing this. That, you know, I actually wouldn't mind seeing this play tested out because it is actually a very clever way of handling it. I like it conceptually. I'm, I, I, I think that it seems like a bit more bookkeeping than I want necessarily, yeah. but I certainly would try it and I'd certainly wouldn't resist as a player, but I'd, I'd like to hear a report back because it just seems like a lot of bean counting. But, um, if you seed the bead counting to your players, it's yeah. maybe that's so and bad. I anyway. think it would work best on something like a, uh, editable PDF character sheet. That has like True. extra check boxes next to the skills, right? And sure. so that way you could more easily keep track and then remove them again without erasing them off of a sheet that would then, you know, just get ripped through pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So here's the part that I have a problem with. Um, in Call of Cthulhu, we have. A fair number of skills that are um, educational skills. Yeah. The sciences, the psychologies, the medicine, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, there are social skills. There are uh, physical adaptation, you know, type of skills. You know, your 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 hide and jump and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, you know, and different things like that. But there's a fair number of like knowledge book learning skills. Um, and a lot of those skills default at, uh, one or 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, you are almost guaranteed to fail those skills 
every time unless you know you're already uh skilled in them so i'm i mean it's the game mechanic but i have a I, i'm having a disconnect with during adventure play um nobody else was around to to uh uh to 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 read uh or interpret um this blood panel result uh, that required a medicine check or um, no one else was available to, uh, to read the facial expressions of that, uh, that suspect over there via psychology or something like that, or psychoanalysis, those kinds of things. And, you know, because I'm, you know, the, the, the bouncer, that's you know decided to start adventuring, um, and I'm all I'm all in spot hidden skills and weapon skills and stuff like that, you know, um, and I don't have any of the thinky kind of skills. Suddenly, because I'm the player who's attempting to do this, you know, or or I'm I'm invoking you know, hey, let me try, let me try, because I know I'm gonna throw the bones and I'm gonna you know, roll a 95 or something, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to certainly get 5% or less. And suddenly my character is, you know, gaining some smarts because you're for sure going to fail those things five times in a row and constantly over and over and over again, you know, it'll be fail five times, fail five times, you know, and then you're getting these 5% jumps in those skills until maybe they start getting into the 20 or 30% range. And then suddenly I'm only failing three or four times and then it's, you know, but it's still popping up at a pretty good pace. Um, it seems for skills that start out really low, it seems like they're going to pop up fairly quick. And then once skills get, you know, 60% or higher, it, it's going to have a more, uh, a slower progression, I would think. Which is uh, the same I, kind of progression that you have now. I mean, exactly. It's, it's really exactly, easy to increase a skill that's, you know, super low. What I would do to counteract it being kind of an automated five points thing anytime that they might succeed is I would say whenever you hit the five on the next one, if it's not a succeed, it blanks the checks. Well, there's that then too. That that actually is a really good idea to blank the checks on that sixth one that uh -huh. fails. You know, and because at least with Call of Cthulhu, five and always staying there until you get that magic success. Right, it keeps resetting. You know, at least at least with Call of Cthulhu, with the lower, you know, with the other skills that you're not, you know, you haven't gone through book learn for to get. You have to at least succeed in it once yeah. to finally start getting, you know, the ability to improve it. I mean, it 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 puts the onus on the player to have that good die roll to to get the success, you know, instead of just fail, 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 fail. Oh, here you go. Um, but I I I like that idea about blanking it out on the sixth one. That's yeah. a good idea. And even the writer mentions that well, you could always also just cap it out at three. If it looks like it's going too quickly, you know, there's all sorts of things that could be tweaked, you know, in that kind of an idea. You know, one you could also take threshold. I was just thinking another solution is to take a. It's not a perfect solution, but if you take say 
you can't do this with any skill that's under 20% or under 30%. You just can't. Yeah, there's that too. You're not going to learn science just by trying to, you know, trying to read a lab result. However, I mean, it, it, it is true that you could, but um, it doesn't really fix it because I think th- those are valid concerns, John, with somebody trying to hack it and just, yeah. well, I'll just, and I've actually had this at my table before. I've had with somebody kind of figured out because for, I, the way I ran it and the way I grew up running, uh, playing Call of Cthulhu is that you had to get an impale in order to get a check, yep. not just succeed at a skill, but get an impale. I think that was an original that's a five, rule. That's a fifth edition rule. That's how I always started playing it too. Thanks. Yeah. I thought that it was baked in at some point. And so he, he didn't really like that cause he got the sixth edition rule book and he was like, and he was kind of into skill progression and so his hack, and we had a little conversation about it, was to um, try a lot of skills a lot of times because he knew that, you know, you play the odds if you just try stuff. <laughs> right. I caught on after a while because I'm prone to just say, sure, you can go ahead and try to read the lab result with your 1%. <laughs> like, it's no sweat off my back. It's if he gets an 01, that would be interesting. And if he doesn't, it's interesting for trying. But I realized he was kind of gaming the system a little bit. And I was like, hey, <laughs> you should not do that so much. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it would leave you vulnerable for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, um, the BRP system is flexible enough uh, that you could... Uh, you can have an engineer ways, uh, ideally in between game sessions. You know, in those those uh, you know, hey, we're we're changing books. We finished that one. Now we're going to go to this one. But what did you do in between? Let's just narrate that, right? You could have sessions where you might say, okay, hey, uh, you know, we're fast forwarding three months or a year or whatever. Uh, and then the player character might say, in that interim, you know, I really, you know, due to the experiences that I had in that other one, I feel like my guy might, uh, you know, go to the community college and, and you know, try and uh, get some info on this and study up on that or check books out of the library. And your characters, I mean, there's no reason why uh, keepers and players can't, Say okay, great. Now that you've uh, uh, spent some time doing that, why don't we take uh, you know two uh, percent? You know, take your you know, and I'm thinking um, sixth edition rules right now, not not the seventh edition where uh, maybe your intelligence is is a number between three and eighteen. And so, okay, take your intelligence times two, and we'll take those uh, those as skill points and distribute them amongst these two or three skills maybe or maybe just one skill you know uh, uh, or maybe it's just you know your straight intelligence and, and I don't have the rule book in front of me as I'm saying this but I think there are rules about doing something like that uh, in between game sessions plus in between game sessions remember your characters can age and as your characters age um uh, you might get certain benefits, especially if they 
you know breach a certain certain age threshold, I think you'll get some uh, some EDU points that you can spend for uh, different things, like you do during character generation. So, yeah, there are training rules uh, in sixth edition and seventh edition as far as getting a teacher and learning new stuff in between. Is that what you're? Yeah, yeah. That that that's it. I, I forgot what they were called, and, and like I said, I don't have a book handy right now but uh, it's on page uh, 69 in the 6th edition and I don't know in 7th shoot but but employ those rules you know you know look to that and and uh, and find ways to to do that and and maybe it, it's it's a guide stone you know i mean don't do, it doesn't have to be set in stone uh, but find what works for you and your players and say okay let's do this um I've read this as the as the rule, but maybe for our group it would work better if we did this instead. You know. Yeah. And looking through, I've, I'm holding uh, my fifth edition five point one point one right now in my hand, and actually the way this reads is that uh, this is also set to where you're supposed to just check the box if you pass the skill, just in uh. general. In yeah. the Keeper's Toolkit, it has the last option in there is Specials, and a Special is a D100 skill result, which is one-fifth or less of the Investigator's percentage. Rolling this should pre- uh, result in a skill check. And hmm. I think that is what my first Keeper took as an idea for slowing down skill progression, is that that's when we're going to check it is when it's an impale of five percent or of uh, one fifth. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's not common because I that's what I grew up with uh-huh. and know of a whole subculture of keepers that you know kind of was handed down to me and they all did it that way. Yeah. So that's one of those things that for the longest time I honestly never I thought it was fifth edition until I just now picked it up and went oh okay that was actually a a house rule thing that just it's like monopoly where everybody has their own house rules that they think are actually on the paper but you never look right 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 cuz i mean even though you guys were mentioning that about fifth edition and the impale you know being the way to get I was pretty sure that that wasn't accurate, but I, I didn't. I didn't want to say anything because, as my understanding, it's always been just a simple success has earned a check mark, mm-hmm. which leads to pretty rapid advancement. Well, not that rapid. I mean, we miss we miss advancements all the time. Plus, mm-hmm. I would argue, what's so bad about rapid advancement? Uh, you know, Call of Cthulhu is hard enough. You know, without having the players, you know, under the thumb of of slow advancement. Yeah. You know, my thought was always realism, though. You know, and so in some cases, yeah, you will pick things up pretty quickly. And then other times it's just not going to be quite as much. Yeah, I mean, personally, my real reaction to this is that... I like how how progression is slow because it undermines the desire for power. It, once you realize that that's just not going to happen, um, I, I think that it, it kind of puts you in a different mindset. And there's a culture around Call of Cthulhu that's just not about 
getting more powerful. It's about kind of a slow descent, really. But, you know, I wanted to, like, entertain the premise, which is to say, well, what if what if somebody did really want some some, you know, higher advancement? And I think uh, something like Pulp Cthulhu, it would fit for that. Oh, yeah. Where you can really character kind of become a badass over time. What I would um, think would work well for a pulp idea, which I have no idea if this is in the book. I kind of doubt it. But how's this for an idea for pulpy style advancement in that if you do like a certain level of really good on your role, be it a one fifth or just a zero one, you instantly get your one D 10. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, yeah. That you get the pulpy. instant reward. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. That does have a very pulpy yeah. feel. And then otherwise, if you just normal succeed, then you get your check. Yeah. You know, I actually did. I shot Mike Mason. Oh, um, my God. You okay. shot Mike Mason. That's, that's, <laughs> um, I, I can't I don't, protect you. We're going to have to turn you in. Yeah, so the, it's not, there's it's not stuff related that to still the needs to be released, like, Chad. I mean, I, <laughs> I just felt like this was the right time to say it. <laughs> get that off your chest. I thought we should get through the crier first in the first topic, and then <laughs> <laughs> and then oh, just bring by up the your, way. I shot Mike Mason. Yeah, did I bury the lead? <laughs> 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 shot Mike Mason a question uh, over email um, about this, and I, I don't, I, I don't really want to quote it because I, I should have asked if I should, if I could just read it. But he did mention that there are some tweaks in Pulp Cthulhu where you can a keeper can award a new pulp talent to a PC for outstanding achievement, and those pulp oh. talents are. Yeah, like you've seen them, right? A, a, a few, a tasting of them. They're like, I think, is Mad Scientist one of them? There's all kinds of um, yeah. yeah, interesting pulpy things. Uh-huh. Um, I know there's there's yeah. psychic powers. There's all sorts of mad science. Right. There's, there's cool, awesome things like that. Okay, so yeah. you can... Yeah. It's not a skill progression type of thing. It's the idea that... Hey, you just figured out this new cool thing. Yep. You can also uh, allow a PC to spend time with a backstory element of some kind, whether it's a person or a teacher or a laboratory, you know, um, and to try to piece together what they've seen, and then they can gain a few extra Cthulhu points. If you already have a Cthulhu Mythos point, so if you already have at least six percent in Cthulhu Mythos in Pulp Cthulhu you could do this between uh, scenarios and get a reward an additional Cthulhu Mythos reward and we know in 7th edition Cthulhu Mythos kind of has some extra cachet because there's if you the optional there's deeper knowledge and then there's the spontaneous use of the Cthulhu Mythos skill to do like cause harm to a target it's like it's really like tapping into the mythos um, and yeah, and doing stuff. You can commune with the recently deceased. You can banish a monster. You can cause physical harm. Um, I really like the whole idea of spontaneous magic, especially in a mythos 
um, context because it's so likely to go wrong. Yeah. Um, and just plain unplanned. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that could be somebody's initial realization that, oh my god, this stuff actually couldn't work. Mm-hmm. Imagine the Sam loss you'd have from that of not only do you are you now in a, a believer as per the way the rules denote it, but you did it by setting your roommate on fire. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You know, during the uh, the running of the haunting that I did over the weekend, um, one player actually was able to read, you know, because we, we were playing with time a little bit and I was condensing it for, for book reading and stuff. So one player uh, was able to read and learned um, the Vorish sign. And uh, when I think about the Vorish sign, what I typically remember about it is that it is a method of hand gestures that will make casting of spells a little more, um, a little bit easier and a little more effective. Uh, but as I'm reading the, uh, the, the, the entry about the spell itself, it says it can also be used as a defensive ward to maybe stop certain creatures. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. So it was the only spell and only one character learned a spell during during that time of, of the haunting. And so, you know, uh, not to give too much away, but in the in the final confrontation, this one character goes, I'm going to try that forest sign. So he starts doing it. And sure enough, the uh, the creature did not advance on him. Uh, instead turned on to his buddy, you know, so I was like, hey, good on you for that, dude. He was both horrified and relieved, but uh, it was really, <laughs> really fun for that. Uh, I was going to say, um, kind of getting back to uh, uh, skill awards and and advancements, um, this is actually something that I have employed in uh, some of the things that I've written is uh, – uh, Player characters might encounter books, non-mythos books, or or maybe even mythos books. You know, I mean, just depending upon what the what the reading is. But um, I typically we think about oh, if you read this book, you'll be awarded Cthulhu mythos points. You know, percent skill points and that. It, I don't. I'm not of the mindset that it should be limited to just Cthulhu mythos. So I know for I can recall in um, uh, Starfall over the Plateau of Lang, um, I have a I have a spot where uh, the player characters might be able to read a uh, an astronomy journal, um, and if they read that journal and learn a little bit of astronomy, right there in game. I'm awarding whoever reads that book. I think it's two or three percent in astronomy. I mean, so your skill goes up right there. You know, it's not you're not having to wait for a uh, uh, in between game session. You're not having to fail the uh, the 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 skill and then you know get that. I'm giving you points right then and there because you read a magazine that 
detailed out certain yeah. astronomical That was kind of intended you know, information. to teach you something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think actually yeah, like, a lot of the, the Mythos tomes actually mention that, that this also grants so many points of occult and sometimes astronomy or natural history or something like that. You know, that only makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I like, you know, instead of the skill progression, I like the progression of the character where they get a uh, an advantage of some kind or a benefit or a boost that is qualitative instead of quantitative. So rather than counting skills, which they matter, but they're sort of not the focus, in, instead of that you you have things like books you may have spells just having contact with a an npc um those are things that are just narratively progressive they they make your character more fleshed out more interesting and also have advantages or resources that they can draw on that um instead of having five points extra in astronomy it's more interesting to know to have encountered an astronomy professor in the previous um, scenario, and and therefore now you have a go-to person in your yeah. in your role. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I, I like uh, in campaign settings player characters uh, expanding their network. You know, getting to become friends with the police chief, uh, learning and becoming friends with. Uh, a doc foreman, you know, and I'm just expanding their investigative network of people, you know, yeah. that's, that's powerful. And, and, and really helps advance the characters and their, and, and their ability to do more effective investigations. Yeah. Yeah. If you're <laughs> going to do a campaign that has a, a more localized area, sort of a thing like, you know, Chad's Kingsport, campaign that you know everything takes place pretty much in town well yeah that's a gold mine for having tons of npcs that you can interact with and get to know them and they know you and reputations build up and things like that yeah hear from our listeners and we have a lot of different ways you can reach out to us our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com we also have a twitter account at mu underscore podcast and you can join our irc channel on the feedback page of the website we have a providence rhode island voicemail number that's 401-400-0-m-u-p that's 401-400-0-m-u-p zero six eight seven or you can use our speak pipe link located on the website ask a question leave us a liner say who you are and i'm enrolled at the miskatonic university podcast and we'd love to get a hearty go pods for our fighting cephalopods who are our home team (laughs) 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 and we'd love to get a hearty go pods for our home team the fighting cephalopods our website is mu-podcast.com, and you can find our show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com forward slash 92. That's the number 92. 
Our forums are at mu-podcast.com slash campus. Come join the community and be a part of those conversations. And a thank you again to our patrons. And you too can be a patron uh, by going to mu-podcast.com forward slash patron. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Class is dismissed. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of H.P. Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University podcast under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. We have a Providence, Rhode Island voicemail number. That's 401-400-0MUP. That's 401-400-0687. Or you can use... Oh, we have a pro- <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> it's like I forgot I was reading. are all hung The fields are white with snow The trimmings on the presents and the tree The kids all snug in beds Dreams of swag all in their heads It's time to pop a beer and watch TV Christmas movies, Christmas shows Very special episodes Filled with Santa bringing joy and giving gifts And that's when the sadness hits Santa, if you're hearing this There's just one thing that's on my list Please bring Firefly back for Christmas It's the time for miracles I hear I'd be laughing ho 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 if I could watch new episodes of my favorite Gorham series at my favorite time of year Santa reach inside your sack Won't you give the blue sky back to all the little brown coat girls and boys Fox execs still have us pissed Put them on the naughty list Like Burger Meister Meister Burger They took away our toys All those Ebenezer Scrooges And their Fox executives Stooges Stole our show from us mid-season Kaylee underneath the mistletoe Please bring Firefly back for Christmas It's your chance to turn around to 
Santa, show them you're the boss. Give the green light back to Joss. And then follow him like Rudolph through the black on Christmas night.